Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. The conversation about peripheral artery disease, or PAD, continues this month with interventional cardiologist Dr. Richard Kovach. We discuss the signs and symptoms of PAD, the great strides that have been made in non-invasive diagnostic tools and interventions, and the latest in surgical options when needed. Here's Rasa Kay. Hi, I'm Rasa Kay with more on peripheral artery disease, or PAD, with Deborah interventional cardiologist, Dr. Richard Kovach. Now, how to diagnose and treat PAD. Screening studies and then diagnostic studies and then studies that we do before we actually intervene or try to fix those blockages. Again, one of the best screening tools is just your own exam. If you're at risk, uh, you know, looking at your feet, looking at your legs to see if there's any changes that seem unusual and not uh, ignoring symptoms. But in terms of simple screening tests in the office that your family physician can can do, they're really the the front line. They're the ones who are most likely to pick up PAD first. Careful physical exam, feeling the pulses in the feet, feeling the pulses in the groin, feeling the pulses behind the knee, looking at the color of the skin, loss of hair, coolness to touch, ulcers, something we even we call capillary refill. We squeeze the fingernails and look at how quickly the the color comes back. And if it's very delayed, that may reflect uh, issues with flow in the small vessels. Listening uh, to the patient, if there's uh, blockages in the uh, large arteries, particularly the arteries in the groin, you can hear what we call a brewy. It's kind of the equivalent to a murmur in the heart where there's turbulent blood flow. Very simple test that can be done in the office is uh, something called an ankle brachial index. It's basically the blood pressure in the ankle divided by the blood pressure in the arm. Gives you a fraction. Anything 0.9 or greater is considered normal. Normally, the blood pressure in the uh, legs should be slightly higher than the blood pressure in the arms. So if that ankle brachial index is 0.7, for instance, that suggests at least moderate peripheral vascular disease. If that ankle brachial index is 0.5 or less, that's uh, going to be suggestive of severe peripheral vascular disease, severe obstruction of flow. And again, that's just a very, very, very simple test that can be uh, done in the office, no special equipment needed. When I give lectures to fellows and residents and things like that, I always remind them that the best screening tool is you doing that good and complete physical exam, taking off the shoes and socks to look at the color of the, of the feet and feel the pulses. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a patient in the office, ask them to take off their shoes and socks so I can examine their feet. Wow, really, do I have to? My doctor never has me take off my shoes and socks. Well, then you've never had a complete physical exam if your doctor never takes off your shoes and socks. So ask your doctor, will you, will you check my feet and check my circulation? You know, I'm, I would like you to do that. Do you see more men or women with PAD? Typically, we see more uh, men than women with PAD. I think it's perhaps because more men are smokers uh, than women, or at least historically that's been the case. But also just as with heart disease and blockages in the heart arteries, women may more often present with atypical symptoms as opposed to the, the classic symptoms. Very often when p- women do present can actually be much worse in terms of the severity of obstruction of blood flow because their arteries are smaller in the first place. So an awful lot of what you first do is, you know, the looking, the listening, the feeling, and then you collect your information that way. That means we need to now do some more confirmatory or look a little deeper. The studies are the next step then, right? And what would that be? Exactly. The next commonest study and least evasive thing is ultrasound, duplex ultrasound, where we can actually look at the um, blood flow within the arteries, basically from the aorta all the way down to the feet. 
we can tell the difference between normal blood flow or turbulent blood flow. If there's obstruction, the um, blood flow in the area of obstruction becomes turbulent. And it's, there's something called, we call color flow on the ultrasound. And we can see the turbulent blood flow in the areas of uh, obstruction. Also, we can measure the velocity of blood flow uh, with ultrasound. And this might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but if there's a blockage where the blockage is, there's an acceleration of the blood flow. The same concept if you take your garden hose and it's, your faucet's on, but then you stick your thumb over the end and obstruct the flow, the water goes faster and further, correct? Because the same amount of blood, or in the case of the garden hose, the same amount of water is trying to get through a smaller space at the same time because the pressure builds up behind it. So the same thing in the artery, the same amount of blood is trying to get through a smaller space. So the velocity of blood flow increases. The normal standard is 2.5 times what the normal velocity of blood flow would be in that area. That usually would suggest at least uh, an obstruction of 70% or greater in that area if we see an increase in velocity. So that's a very, again, easy office-based test that can be done, non-invasive, doesn't involve getting any dye or x-ray imaging or anything like that. Another simple test that we can do are what are called pulse volume recordings, where we uh, put blood pressure cuffs up and down the legs, actually typically four areas between the, uh, the groin and the, and the calf. The cuffs are puffed up. Transducers or sensors in those cuffs sense the pulse wave. Every time your heart pumps, there's a, uh, just like you can feel in your wrist, there's a, a wave. It gives you sort of the same type of a waveform that you would see if you actually had a catheter in an artery, even though it's not really directly measuring uh, blood flow in the artery. It gives you a wave as that volume of blood is coming through the leg. It's going to expand that cuff a little bit, and the transducer is going to pick that up and give you a wave. So we measure that wave all the way through the leg. If there's a normal waveform that it's going to have, it should be normal all the way to the feet. If suddenly there's a good wave, a good wave, and the next, next cuff there's nothing, or a very diminished or very rounded off or very low amplitude wave, it's going to tell us, gee whiz, there may be an obstruction at their, that area. Now, both those tests, the, the PVR, or pulse volume recording, or the um, ultrasound are more qualitative than quantitative. You know, we can, as I mentioned, we can guesstimate the degree of uh, stenosis by the velocity, but it's really not the same as actually uh, seeing the artery and, uh, and measuring the degree of, uh, of blockage or stenosis in the artery. More definitive studies would be CT angiography that involves putting an IV in, giving a dye, and taking a picture of the um, dye as it flows through the arteries. And obstructions in the, in the blood flow will show up very clearly on that. Uh, if there's a lot of calcium in the vessel, sometimes the calcium can distort the, uh, the CT scan uh, images. For those cases, a patient does have a lot of calcium in their arteries, not just plain cholesterol uh, or fibrotic plaque. Uh, you can do an MRA or an MR angiogram. And that can also very clearly define the whole vascular tree, tell you exactly where the blockages are, how, what the severity of the blockage is. And we use that kind of information to plan what the best treatment course is for that patient, whether it's something we can manage with medications alone, along with a good exercise program, or whether something more invasive is needed, like balloon angioplasty and stenting, or use of, quote, rotor rooters and things to remove the plaque. Or in the uh, uh, most severe cases, if things like surgical bypass are necessary. Most of the time, we try to avoid surgery as long as possible because, you know, especially if you're uh, putting in a, a bypass graft, it's kind of you gone to your end game as the first step. 
rather than saving that for the, the last step when you've exhausted your other less invasive uh, options. From least invasive to most invasive, how do they line up? Well, least invasive, again, is uh, medical therapy is going to be, uh, if your cholesterol is elevated, cholesterol-lowering agent. If your blood pressure is elevated, keeping the blood pressure under very tight control. If you're a diabetic, keeping the uh, sugar under tight control, getting your hemoglobin A1C uh, as low as possible. If you're a smoker, obviously stop smoking. You know, all those things we can control to some extent. What we can't control is our family history. Unfortunately, we can't control our, our genetics. So least invasive is medications combined with a good exercise program. Exercise is one of the best ways to help develop collateral channels, little channels that around the area of blockage that help to deliver more blood to the, uh, to the tissue. The more you exercise, the more collaterals you develop. Unfortunately, particularly with the obesity epidemic, getting uh, patients to exercise and really be religious about exercising and uh, walking every day is very difficult. Many patients fail an exercise program because they tell me, well, it hurts too much. I can't exercise. I get pain when I exercise. We try to counsel them about, well, you know, stop, rest. Next time they'll be able to go a little further, stop, rest, walk through it, walk a little further. Several patients in my practice over the years, it's actually amazing how many collaterals you can develop by uh, being extremely religious about, about exercising. Patients that we've done multiple procedures on to try and open up their blockages have had failed bypasses and things like that, but have been really just almost neurotic about exercising and come back and I see them each year, less symptoms, less symptoms, and a couple patients who have palpable pulses in their feet. I know their arteries in their thighs are 100% blocked, but they've developed such rich collateral channels that I can actually feel the pulses in their feet and they have no symptoms anymore. So exercise is a very real thing and it, it does work. But again, unfortunately, most people don't exercise. And unfortunately also, patients aren't necessarily as compliant as they should be with their medications. Particularly in folks, unfortunately, who are on fixed incomes, who, you know, even if you have copays, if you have eight medications, each with a $20 copay, that's still a tremendous amount of money each month. So they'll take their cholesterol medication Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and their high blood pressure medication Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and that's uh, rather unfortunate. So it's uh, great compliance with medications is sometimes also very, very difficult. The distance from minimally invasive to surgery, and you talked about surgery being the last hurrah on this. So what are those interventions like and the experience for the patient and what they signify in terms of severity? We have all sorts of, we call it a toolbox of devices that we can use to open up blocked arteries, basically anywhere from the aorta all the way down to the, uh, to the feet. Atherectomy catheters, multiple different mechanisms, the way they work, that can remove plaque from the arteries to restore blood flow. They don't necessarily reduce the risk of the blockage coming back, but uh, help us to establish a good channel to work with, and at least in the short run, normalize the blood flow to the leg. They come in various sizes, from uh, the large arteries in the thigh, all down to very tiny uh, devices that we can take actually all the way down into the foot. We have balloons to help stretch open the arteries. So we have drug-coated stents that we can use in the uh, periphery, drug-coated balloons as well. These drugs are used once we get an artery open to reduce the likelihood of what we call renarrowing or restenosis, the blockage coming back again. What device we choose really depends on the anatomy, 
how much calcification there is, what the extent of the disease is. Is it concentric all the way around the blood vessel? Is it on one side of the blood vessel and not the other? What I would say, though, is that most of these procedures are done through just a puncture, usually in the groin. We have tiny catheters that we can also advance up from the foot. And more recently, we're also uh, performing angioplasty, just as an aside, refers to whatever tool we use to open up the artery. Balloons are angioplasty, rotorooters are angioplasty, stents are angioplasty. It's a, it's a generic term for opening up the artery. So we have multiple options, but the bottom line is most of these procedures are outpatient procedures. They're done through a puncture, not an incision. And most patients you know, go home four to six hours after the procedure and are back to normal uh, activity within, within no time. Define no time. Really, once a patient leaves the hospital, after they've had an artery open, we tell them really nothing strenuous for two or three days so that there's no bleeding at the puncture site. But from a recovery standpoint, the blockage itself is effectively no uh, recovery. We just worry because we put the patients on things like aspirin and Plavix and other agents that reduce the ability of the blood to clot. And so we just worry about them straining and you know popping a clot loose at the puncture site and, and having a, a bleed after the uh, procedure is done. Now, after procedure's done and you've cleared the blockage, there's going to be a lifestyle change, yes? There's got to be a lifestyle change. Sometimes these procedures, especially if we're working below the knee, can be long, can take two or three hours. And they're done with conscious sedation, you know, just something to make you a little in la-la land. When it's all said and done, I always tell the patients, look, I've done the easy part. Even though this took time to get this artery open, the hard part is to keep you from coming back again. You've got to stop smoking. You've got to get your diet under control. You've got to exercise. You've got to keep the cholesterol down. You've got to keep your sugar down, your blood pressure controlled, et cetera. As I tell them, otherwise, you know, chances are you're going to become a frequent flyer here. And I like you very much, but I don't want you to become a frequent flyer. The surgical aspect, you had referred to it before, where you're, you're doing a bypass yeah. in the leg. You're literally rerouting blood flow around the blockage? Exactly. Just like a, a bypass in the, in the heart is they take a, use an artery on the inside of your chest wall or a vein from your leg to attach into the aorta above the blockage and then into the heart artery below the blockage, bypassing it. The same thing can be done. Probably the most common bypasses done surgically are what we call a fem pop bypasses, which is the femoral artery to the popliteal artery to get around a totally occluded uh, artery in the uh, thigh, or a um, what we call a cross-femoral or fem-fem bypass, where one leg is so blocked up all the way up to the groin, but it's the artery's open down to that point where a bypass will be done from the one leg to the other leg to route the blood to the other side. Again, you know, a lot of people think that a bypass is permanent, but bypasses can also develop blockages as well. So, uh, you know, it's kind of this uh, false sense of security that a lot of patients, even after coronary bypass surgery, oh, well, I'm bypassed, I can go eat three cheese steaks tonight for dinner. No, you can't. <laughs> no, you still, you still got to be very, very diligent because those bypasses it can go down. But once a, a bypass is done, and we actually open up bypasses through these minimally invasive techniques as well, but once a bypass is done, generally speaking, it limits what we can do from a minimally invasive standpoint in the, in the future. Bypasses can be done from the femoral artery down to below the knee, but what we call the long-term patency of those types of bypasses, because you're going from a big artery into a tiny artery, is not the greatest. 
you know, we have very skilled surgeons here that do an excellent job doing those types of bypasses, but uh, it's not unusual for those bypasses to, to close down. A way to think of it is if there's not what we call brisk runoff below where the bypass is sewn in, the blood flow through that bypass graft is going to be slow. And if blood slows down, it clots. So uh, it can be uh, problematic when you're going from a big vessel, especially into a tiny vessel below the knee. Those arteries below the knee are roughly the same size as the arteries in our heart uh, that feed our heart muscle, which is anywhere from two to four millimeters in diameter. So it's pretty small. And like the branches of the tree, the further away you get from the heart, the smaller they get. So if you've got a blockage that requires a bypass, this whole process has been going on a long time then. Then this is something that if maybe it had been caught earlier, would not have resulted in that? Or does a blockage like that happen? Sometimes you're just that unlucky. Sometimes you're just that unlucky, but more often it's that it's something that's been going on for a long time. Very often we can put off bypass or at least delay bypass uh, because we now have the ability in I would say the majority of the cases to also get through 100% blockages, even if they've been blocked for years. I just did a case today before doing this interview where the artery was blocked from the groin all the way down to below the knee. It's been blocked that way a long time, but we opened it up, restored normal blood flow to the leg, and at the very least, that should give the patient several years of, of relief and ability to exercise and kind of get their act together and hopefully avoid a bypass in the future. But if that does become an inevitability, uh, at least delay it for, for several years. If you have a PAD question, if your primary is saying, I think you need a little more study about the pulses I'm feeling in your ankles, uh, why should somebody come to Deborah to have their potential PAD evaluated? Probably the biggest reason to come to Deborah is that we're a cardiovascular specialty center. I'm an interventional cardiologist. I don't do bypasses. I don't do any cutting. Uh, but I do all the minimally invasive procedures, as do all my colleagues. And all my colleagues in the interventional cardiology department are all highly skilled in performing these uh, types of vascular procedures, not only the coronary procedures, but the peripheral vascular procedures. Because uh, the amount of experience that we have, number one, access to the latest technologies, to a lot of technologies that most places don't have. We also have uh, an active research department, which also... Uh, gives us access to technologies that aren't even commercially or generally available yet. And we have, to have the opportunity to enroll patients into investigational studies for some of these new technologies coming down the pike. And as the saying goes, the more you do something, the more experience you have, the uh, better you get at it. The average coronary interventionist in the country does 50 angioplasties a year. Uh, at Deborah, each of us does several hundred a year. The uh, average person doing intervention below the legs does less than 50 interventions a year, and we do hundreds individually. The experience, the access to the latest technologies, quality of care before and after the procedures. Atherosclerosis or hardening the arteries is a systemic disease that affects us from head to toe. It's advantageous for patients to be seen at an institution who is able to treat vascular disease from head to toe. That's interventional cardiologist Dr. Richard Kovach. Join us for our next Deborah podcast, the first Wednesday of the month when we explore another medical issue you need to understand. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at demanddeborah.org.